Welcome to the MedEvidence Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Corrin and Michelle McCormick. MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the real truth behind medical research with both a clinical and research perspective. In this podcast, we'll have discussions with physicians that have extensive experience in patient care and research. How do you know that something works? In medicine, we conduct clinical trials to see if things work. Now, let's get the truth behind the data. Welcome to MedEvidence, Truth Behind the Data. Today, we're talking about what to do after a heart attack or stroke. Joining us, Dr. Albert Lopez and Dr. Michael Corrin. Well, in the first segment of Med Evidence, Truth Behind the Data, What to Do After a Heart Attack or Stroke, we established that people who have had either of these events, a heart attack or stroke, still at high risk for a repeat procedure or repeat event. Um, we talked about a lot about the team, knowing who your PCP is and your specialist, your family needs to be aware of symptoms, what's abnormal, what is normal, and if the event lasts greater than 20 minutes, that's when you really need to make that emergency Absolutely. medical call. Um, now, let's move into the how to make this different and better. We we touched on it briefly about the modifiable and unmodifiable or non-modifiable risk factors. So let's kind of dive into that a yeah, little bit. And that's the way physicians think about things. There's things that we can change and there's things that we can change and we can only mitigate the consequences. Right. So Dr. Lopez will give us a brief rundown on what's modifiable risk factors and what are non-modifiable risk factors. So Dr. Korn and I always love to talk about lipids. It's our, I was going to say, this is thing. like in your wheelhouse, guys. It's yeah, our thing. Um, you know, knowing your lipid, I really dislike the cholesterol name, but the lipid profile. Um, there's four we usually focus on, and those are very important. Um, and lipids, by the way, is just a, a word for blood levels. Well, blood yeah. fats. Yeah. Blood fats. Better yeah. said. Thank yeah. you. Um, <laughs> diabetes or prediabetes. And we have to remember that diabetes has four to six times higher risk factor for cardiovascular events. And even prediabetes has double the risk factor. So just because your sugar is only 100, that's still a double the risk. It's double from what the average Joe's is or Jane's is. So you have to be really cognizant of that. And we want to bring that down. Overweight, obesity, both of those are really significant. Um, not just for heart disease, but for many chronic diseases. So that's very important. Um, and lack of physical exercise. So movement therapy, because a lot of people are allergic to exercise. Um, <laughs> movement therapy works very well. And there's all kinds of studies we can talk about and touch, touch to, speak to. Um, how we eat or unhealthy diets or eating lifestyles are very important. Um, we're a fast-paced society and with COVID, um, the fast food's not your best friend. It's easy, but it's not good for you. Um, and we can talk about that and then smoking. Um, and not just smoking, like lighting up a cigarette or cigar, because people forget cigars, but it's also tobacco in oral form is a risk factor and vaping is not good for you. Um, it's actually been shown to be just as bad as smoking on many levels. Um, blood pressure, um, very, very important, a number of um, on levels, and then stress. And then the other modifier risk factor we didn't list was inflammation. Um, chronic inflammation is an issue, and we can, we can go into detail as you're ready. Sure. Yeah, so the modifi modifiable risk factors are important from a clinical standpoint because we can make a difference. Mm -hmm. And there are things that we can correct. Now, this is going to blow your mind a little bit, but the relationship between the risk factor and changing the risk factor is not always straightforward. Mm -hmm. 
So, for example, we know that there are certain risk factors that also are risk markers. Okay. Okay, so a risk marker means that there's an association, but the relationship between changing that parameter and improving things could be unclear. So, for example, as we get older, our cholesterol levels actually tend to come down a little bit, but that doesn't mean that our risk comes down. Right. Whereas cholesterol and lipids is one of those things that when we change them, particularly when we get them to very low levels, people just do better. They have fewer heart attacks, they have fewer strokes, and we can do it without generating side effects. So uh, Dr. Lopez and I love to talk about that, and we love to talk to our patients about that because it makes a big, big difference. Mm -hmm. But what happens is sometimes people say, oh, my, well, my cholesterol uh, when I was 30 years old was you know, was 250 and now it's 200, so that's pretty good, I'm, I'm, I'm moving in the right direction. And meanwhile, between 30 and 50, their risk overall has gone up tremendously. Mm -hmm. So even though their cholesterol is now 200 and was 250 20 years ago, it's much more compelling to treat it now than it was when they were 30. So the bad cholesterol, what does that well, do? Well, that's a different thing. I'm just using yeah. it in a general okay. sense right okay. now. Yeah. Well, I think the other general sense is that people tell me, oh, well, my cholesterol's always been high. Mm -hmm. And we have to remember, and it's not that bad. Well, we know that it's long-term long exposure to lipids is a problem, but also the intensity or how high that lipid is is also a risk factor. So even though it's only X amount, X plus, if you've had that for 40 years, it's a risk factor. No, there's you no, know, there's no question it's a risk factor. To, yeah. You put metal in water for 30 years, even if it's mildly salinated water, it's going to rust. Your arteries are going to rust with that high lipid level, right? Right. So, so again, there, there's some discussion about when to initiate lipid therapy. But again, we're right. talking about people that have already had an event. Mm -hmm. right? So the, the point we're, we're really making is that once you have an event, you want to focus in those, on those things that we can change and be extremely aggressive. And because of some things we can't change. And it's because there's some things that we can't do anything about. We are, as physicians, are going to be really, really focused and work with you on the stuff that's really modifiable. Well, and our patients, after they've had a heart attack or stroke, more willing to make these these modifiable changes? You get people's attention after a heart attack and yeah. stroke. So typically they're they're much more amenable to have, that, uh, have interventions, particularly in the period of time right after the event. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so interesting that we see a, a huge spectrum of how people are willing to change, right? So people will say, I always ask, what's your why? Why do you want to change? Everybody has a why in their life, right? It may be their grandchild. It may be their dog. It may be that they like to run. It may be something. And you, I think you have, we, you and I both have to touch what is your why. And usually then you can enact them to do something. But, um, you know, some people make paradigm changes. We've seen people go pure vegetarian. I mean, pure plant-based. And as we go, there's no way I'm doing that. I'm just not doing that. But then we'll start having the conversation. Well, how about reducing it to this much? And how about if we don't fry it? And sometimes baby steps works to get them to where we want to get. And sometimes they can make this huge paradigm change all mm -hmm. at once. But everybody's different on how they do that. But we're surprised sometimes that people don't make changes. Right. The other thing that's very important about modifiable risk factors is that <clears throat> there's a lot of interplay between them. And so, uh, for example, uh, people that have diabetes will develop vascular stiffness over time, which will raise their blood pressure. And uh, in turn, certain blood pressure medications happen to help people with diabetes, actually help lower their sugar level, mm. whereas other blood pressure medications can raise your sugar levels. 
So this is where it gets really, really complicated and why you need a risk factor expert because there's a tremendous amount of, of interplay. Even with uh, cholesterol medications, there's, <clears throat> there's certain cholesterol medications that seem to have other positive effects. We use the term pleiotropic trophic effects, which is the fancy medical word saying things that are outside of just what we can easily measure. Okay. But the point being is that this gets pretty complicated. And so you'll read a, a bunch of things on the internet and in other places about this lowers my cholesterol in this way and this lowers it in that way. But you really want to work with an expert on these things because you'd be surprised at how things can play out and it'll be very, very different than, than what, you, what you think. Well, and medication can also, you know, different medications for different things can contraindicate each other and not work well together for that that right. patient as well. So, so give, let me give you a very practical example of this. So we talked about being overweight as a modifiable risk factor, but being overweight interfaces with high blood pressure, diabetes, and lipids. Okay, So do you treat each of the individual things or do you just help people lose weight? Mm -hmm. Knowing that a lot of, the, a lot of things will improve. And um, you know, we, we haven't had great medicines for weight loss, but that's changing pretty quickly. So sometimes really the key for some people is getting their weight down. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people just can't do it and they have to be considered for bariatric surgery, for example. So this is where the risk factor discussion gets really pretty complicated. You need somebody that can lead you through it. Even we see this in, in medications in the diabetes realm. You know, if the mainstay for treating diabetes was the thought was, you lower your sugar, you're in a safer place. And that's not 100% true, right? So we've used insulins forever, but we know insulin increases weight gain. And it actually is not anti-cardiovascular disease. It's actually pro-atherogenic. It'll right. make more plaque. And so the new paradigm is to move away from insulins and use some of the newer drugs that have a multiplicity of other beneficial effects. So you may use it for lowering sugar, but it may also... We have two new classes of drugs that lower cardiovascular event, they lower stroke event, they protect kidneys, and they cause weight loss. Oh my gosh, you know, give me the pill now. <laughs> right, right. Um, but we finally have drugs that do that, and they're not just one-level drugs, mm. right? And then they have risk factors. Um, so we've, you know, in the last 50 years, a lot has changed. And even in 20 or 30 years, a lot has changed. And the funny part about this is that we've learned these things through coincidence and by doing experiments mm -hmm. and finding that there are unintended consequences both good and bad when we do research and when we look at the evidence so uh, dr lopez was alluding to this class of drugs called sglt2 inhibitors and these are drugs that uh, help the kidney get rid of extra glucose mm -hmm. so they were originally developed as treatments for diabetes they help you get rid of glucose and they lower your blood sugar great well, the FDA, in its wisdom, said, well, let's make sure this is really safe for heart disease patients. Um, you know, we, we agree and we believe you, drug company, that it lowers the glucose, but does it really help people with heart disease? So the FDA actually mandated studies with these drugs just to show that they were safe. They weren't expecting any real big benefits on heart disease. They would just want to make sure it didn't make heart disease worse. worse. But lo and behold, we do these studies, and all of a sudden we're seeing that people that are taking these drugs have less congestive heart failure. They have fewer heart attacks. Their blood pressure comes down a little bit. Hmm. And so there was all these unintended positive consequences that we saw for these new classes of drugs that we did not see for insulin. And we did not see for some of the older uh, diabetes medications. Go ahead. So, so, <laughs> so the point there, of course, is that you learn and you get um, insight from these clinical trials, and you want to work with physicians that understand this evidence, because they'll get you on the right thing. Yeah, fascinating. 
just a side cute story is as these drugs were coming out, these uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, you know, it was used as a diabetes drug initially, as you mentioned. So it was endocrinologists or, or diabetes specialists and primary care, you know, mainly interns and family practice that were using them. And as the data went out, then cardiologists started going, well, this is our drug. This is our drug. And then cardiologists go, no, it's our drug. Right. And I stepped up in a prevention meeting and said, actually, it's an internal medicine drug because we do all of this. We're the yeah, GC of there medicine, you go. So all of you can step down. Right, right. Which, so, so that's interesting. It gets back to our first segment, which talked about the fact that you have to know your team. Mm -hmm. right. So there are some teams where the cardiologist just fixes things and then the internist does everything else. There's other practices where the cardiologist gets much more involved. Cardiologists have to finish internal medicine training before they become cardiologists. So we, you know, we have that background, but some of my colleagues have forgotten all that mm -hmm. and we have to trust other people that still do the day to day. So part of it is understanding the interdynamics of your particular team and what each of the parties is going to be doing. And I think what we've started to lose, and I think you and I don't have this problem, is we don't interact as easily because we expect the electronic medical record to do that. But there's nothing like calling a colleague, and I've done this with Dr. Corn before, hey, I'm worried about Mrs. Jones. Um, she's having symptoms that I'm not comfortable with. Um, I want to initiate this. Just give me your, your spin on it, and, and do you think that's a good thing? And that's a two-minute phone call, which gives the patient this huge exponential benefit. Um, so sometimes we have to go back to basics. You know, we forget to call, we forget to interact. And you know, EMR may take three weeks before he sees it because he's so busy, because he's not seeing the patient for two months. Mm. Right. And so, you know, that one phone call makes a big difference. And again, know your team, you know, know your team and know that the team has value with each other and, and can interact with each other. Right, and so and another better. example of this new class of drugs are called the GLP-1 agonists. And this was originally developed again as a diabetes drug with the advantage of being triggered by a meal. The problem with taking insulin is that it lowers your blood sugar all the time right. and it's not triggered by a meal, whereas a GLP-1 mm. drug is actually triggered by a meal. So again, it was shown to be a good way of lowering blood glucose, particularly uh, in response to people that were having elevated levels related to eating. But what we learned by doing the clinical trials is that it seems to have weight loss properties. Yeah, I've heard this. I've heard about this. Yeah. yeah. And so they're actually, they're actually now approved for people that don't have diabetes for weight loss. Yeah. And they work pretty darn well. So it turns out is that this same mechanism of perhaps overeating and leading to higher glucose levels is related to this feedback loop between your gut, your liver, and your brain. And there are certain drugs that enhance that feedback loop to help people lose weight. Hmm. Well, and I'm going to even throw another curveball in here. And we started with this class of drug and looking at arthritis mm. on certain patients. And I'll let you talk to what our evidence. We started a trial with the same drug for diabetes, you know, um, blood sugar drop. We found that they lose weight. Mm. We actually found it has cardiovascular benefits. Mm. And then we started doing this trial on arthritis. And how is that looking? I mean, yeah. the, the final data isn't out, but it's looking... And the, and the fat in your liver goes away. So, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so it's, it's very, very interesting is that when you, when you hit the right button, a lot of good things happen. So yeah. we'll talk about the right button during the next segment. I'm your host, Michelle McCormick, and we want to thank Dr. Michael Corrin for his clinical and research perspective behind the science in this episode of Med Evidence, the truth behind the data.